0: Desmond are you there yes how are you I had to key in manually the uh, URL
1: oh my usually when people get the link usually just click on it and it takes you right to the, the episode
0: well what probably was happening is your link was not getting through my firewall
1: got you got you all right
0: so when you sent me the screenshot i just manually typed in the url and the configuration and here we are
1: got you i'm just glad you were able to get through
0: (laughs) well you improvise you adapt you overcome
1: absolutely i like that mindset so before we start i just want to say thank you so much Diane, for accepting my invitation to come on the podcast. I really appreciate
0: it. I'm looking forward to it. And for the formality of the podcast, would you kindly address me as Dr. Sorrentino?
1: I got you. I can definitely do that.
0: All right. You have my undivided attention, young man.
1: (laughs) Sounds good. So, Dr. Sorrentino, um, we're going to get right into it, okay? Let's go for it. All right. So your first question is talk about your life story from your childhood all the way up to now.
0: How much time do we have for your program? <laughs> as long as you need. <laughs> well, my childhood is pretty much nondescript. Until um, I reached adolescence, that is when my own Gender dysphoria started to manifest itself into a more significant level. But at the time, considering my age and the calendar year, the availability of information, knowledge, and resources was non existent. We're talking 1966 here. Right. So through my adolescence, high school, undergraduate school, I wrestled with the issue on and off to the degree possible, looking for answers and not finding any. Not until I was in graduate school when I was finally doing some research in the college library. And I was always looking for information. And that's where I found my first book, which provided me with some insight and guidance to support groups and then knowledge base and resources upon which to build.
1: Okay, okay. I'm glad you were able to find some information that you needed during times of growing up. Um, How would you describe growing up like during like the 60s compared to now?
0: Well, needless to say, the 60s were a unique period in our history. You had the emergence in grand scale of the LGBTQ community, even though at the time was primarily referred to as LGB. Uh, You had the Stonewall issues in 1969 in New York City and sort of a coming of age for the gay and lesbian communities.
1: Got you, got you. Um, How do you feel like things have progressed in society today compared to in the past now, in general, from your point of view?
0: All right. My life's evolution took place 33 years ago in 1990. And even then, uh, the resources available, the knowledge bases were very limited. There was no internet then. You know, as the millennia came along and the growth and expansion of the internet, resources became significantly more available to a broader base of individuals, plus the establishment of networking groups, support groups, ally groups, more physicians becoming trained, psychologists becoming trained in working with the gender diverse community, individuals suffering with gender dysphoria or gender incongruence. So the past 20 years, literally, has seen a groundswell of advancements, but more specifically in the medical and the scientific community, because prior to the DSM-5, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Psychological and psychiatric issues, as well as the ICD 10, which is the international classification of medical illnesses. They classified gender dysphoria at the time as, you know, gender identity disorder, but it's not a disorder. And that changed with the DSM 5 to gender dysphoria. Now, what science and medical research has identified is that there are prenatal hormone anomalies that take place while the fetus is developing in the womb. And those anomalies of hormones that are taking place have a direct influence on the individual's development, not just physically, but mentally.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, How do you feel when people disrespect or look down upon people who are transgender?
0: Well, those are individuals who are ill-informed, misinformed, or uninformed. You know, I've run across more than my share of individuals in my lifetime that were of that mindset. And if they were willing to sit and listen, and I'll give you a brief overview. Okay. You have a child in utero, chromosome wise, they're XY. So physiologically, it's developing male. But if that child has anomalies with their prenatal hormones, testosterone is supposed to be a level 10. I'm just giving you arbitrary numbers for perspective's sake, rather than getting into, you know, picograms per milliliter and decagrams for deciliter and so forth. Many times those fetuses have a testosterone level of only one or two, when it should be a scale of 10. During trimesters, excuse me one second. Okay. Had to mute the microphone so I could cough. No problem. During pregnancy, A woman's estrogen level increases exponentially. A woman of childbearing years who is not pregnant, her normal estrogen level is anywhere from 130 to 200 picograms per milliliter. During pregnancy, her hormone level of estrogen in the first trimester can hit 5,000 picograms per milliliter. Second trimester can hit as high as eight thousand picograms per milliliter, and in the third trimester, slide back to five or six thousand picograms per milliliter. Now, you take a male fetus who has very little testosterone in their system due to androgen insensitivity or androgen deficiency. Androgen is testosterone. And the brain is being flooded with estrogen. You have a child that's born with a male body, but their mindset, their mental perspective of themselves is female. And as this knowledge has come forward, we're seeing more and more children, ages three, four, and five identify in a different gender than their physical sex because you have your physical sex, male, female, and then you have your gender, male, female. But the two are not always consistent with one another. Right. Okay. Um,
1: Go
0: that's ahead, very Greg.
1: good information.
0: Okay. Now I'm going to take a little bit further. Go for it. Adolescents and adults who have transitioned male to female have had functional MRI studies performed of the brain and the brain function, comparing gray matter, white matter, and how the brain processes neurons information. And what they found when comparing a transgender, trans woman, male to female, with a genetic female, and the contemporary term that's now being used is cis female, the brain patterns are almost identical So you have a brain in a physical male body that mirrors the behavior and the structure of a female brain, of a genetic female. And the reverse is also true. When you have a trans male, a female assigned at birth who then transitions to male, the functional MRI matches that individual's brain pattern activity, gray matter, white matter, with that of a cis male conventional male so you have biological factors having a significant influence on brain activity and it starts in utero. you know when my when I first started seeing a physician about my condition and they did my hormone levels, my testosterone which should have been a 10 was a zero. my estrogen which should have been a 3 or a two was 10 plus. So this gets back to prenatal development, but that factual information has only come to light over the past two decades, as medicine and science starts digging deeper into the ideology of these differences between individuals. It's a lot to take in.
1: Definitely, definitely. But I feel like it's necessary to do research on things you may or may not know about, so you'd be better informed and you can have um, general conversations with people.
0: Well, the second thing is, as individuals today read headlines, they want quick pieces right. of information which may be factual and not a knowledge base. You know, I've been seeing this for over 30 30- you know, as soon as I was I able to identify credible information, as well as medical, medical profession- professional professionals to work with, I just kept and digging. Because of the knowledge base, my own personal, personal and professional experiences, I've been working with transgender and gender diversity as a consultant in- for 30 years, as, as well as the medical and behavioral health care professionals who work with them and provide treatment. Beyond that, I'm even training today, medical and behavioral health care professionals because the medical schools do not teach this. In 2011, there was a survey done of 132 medical schools. 16 specific questions were asked relevant to the LGBTQ plus community transgender, gender diverse, treatment, and hormone management to determine what was being taught in these 132 medical schools and the duration. The average was five hours combined of clinical and academic training on that subject. Five hours. Mm. And of the 16 topics, only 8% of the schools covered all 16. So every psychologist I've spoken with and I work with, every medical professional, you know, they begrudgingly acknowledge that their schools do not teach this. This is also one of the reasons I launched the podcast, Paradoxes of Gender, because the target audience is the medical and behavioral healthcare care professionals. And the content that I create and the guests that I bring to my show are solely for the purpose of educating that very specific community. Now, the flip side of the coin is while it's geared towards the medical and behavioral health care professionals, individuals, individuals and their families, whether they're advancing in their transitions or they're just starting, will find very factual and useful information, you know, in these podcasts.
1: Right. I feel like you got to have an open mind, and definitely have to keep your ears open and just like a sponge soak up the information. Cause it's good to know things you don't know about.
0: Well, especially when so much misinformation and politically driven information, which is wrong is right. out there today. And that's all that people hear. I mean, I have churches that are now asking me to come and speak to their pastors To help them understand so they can work with their congregants. You know, Mm. uh, I've had seminaries already contact me to come out and do instructions because I have formal programs for these individuals as well beyond the podcast. So there is a group growing and expanding of individuals where they want the correct information. They want the factual information. And you know, every so often I was having a conversation with a woman last week, and I was explaining all that I just explained to you, but even more substantive detail. And she just couldn't grasp it. And she turned to me and says, Well, what if I start walking around town saying I'm a car beeping and making funny engine noises? I says, Well, then you belong in a psychiatric facility. Hmm. So we're talking about individuals whose perspective of their gender, which is incongruent with their sex assigned at birth, is medically driven due to hormonal levels beginning at the prenatal level. Beyond individuals who are trans women or trans men, these types of hormonal anomalies in utero can also impact genetic females in a unique way. There have been cases where a child is born, it's designated female sex at birth, no gender dysphoria, the child goes through childhood, enters adolescence and physically the body's developing into a young woman, but there's no period. Her menses hasn't started. Upon physical examination and ultrasound, it's determined she has no uterus. She has no ovaries Mm. due to the hormonal anomalies. You know, scientists have indicated that every fetus starts life as a female. And then depending upon hormones, genetics will determine evolution as female, or male. Now, the gonads that are part of the developing fetus, if it's an XX chromosome and the hormone levels are normal, the gonads travel up and become the ovaries and attach through fallopian tubes to the uterus that develops. If the fetus is developing male, XY, and there are no hormone anomalies, the gonads descend into what becomes a scrotum and they become the testes. It all starts with the same biology. And for someone who's never been exposed to this, it's a lot to get their head around.
1: Right. This is very true. It's a lot to take in. Like you need time to take in the information that you're receiving and then respond to what you've been learning. So.
0: Exactly. And what's nice today versus... 30 plus years ago, is, you know, I share with these folks, if you doubt what I'm telling you, that's fine. Do your own research. Everything I've shared with you is in the public domain. You have Kaiser Permanente in California has done research studies. The Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, Cedar sinai Medical Center in California, Mount Sinai, New York City, NYU Medical Center, New York City. Uh, Having a senior moment here for a second, but- um, Take your time. The Medical Center in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins, they've done research on this. So the information's out there, but it requires somebody to sit down, find the medical treaties. WebMD has good information the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, which started out as the Harry Benjamin Gender Dysphoria International Organization back in the 1950s. I don't know if you recall in history a woman by the name of um, Christine Jorgensen.
1: Sounds familiar. All right,
0: 1952, she traveled to Denmark. Well, when she departed the country, Christine was a heat. When Christine returned, she was Christine Jorgensen. So she went over for her gender affirmation surgery. Uh, World War II, highly decorated soldier, struggled with gender dysphoria, and she became a media darling. She wasn't looking for that, but it was such a novelty at the time that, my God, look what science can do. And there was not a lot of negative about it. Most of it was because it was an anomaly. It was unique, a novelty. Time went on. So there's a lot of history there, but the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, WPATH.org, is they put out, they have the standards of care, version eight was released in 2022. And that is a compilation of research papers, guidance and ethics by a very large pool of medical and psychological professionals. And it provides the medical community and the behavioral health community with guidance on how to work with transgender individuals, whether male to female or female to male. And they provide all the references for the positions that are stipulated in there. And they break it down by prepubescent children, adolescents, young adults, senior adults, and so forth. It's a tremendous resource. The Standards of Care, you can go to their website, download it for free as a PDF. It's only 370 pages, but it's a great document.
1: That's not too bad. 370 pages is not too bad. You just got to sit down and just really read and really focus.
0: Well, how I use it is for my own reference. Yep. For example, I met a woman, a professional, about a year ago, and she commented to me that her child, daughter, child, came out as non-binary. And this woman happened to be a nurse, and she was absolutely clueless as to where to get information. She's a medical nurse. She's not in this arena. So it's not surprising. So I go to my computer. I copy the 24 pages out of the standard of care eight dealing specifically with non-binary individuals. And I gave it to her and it was like, oh my God, this is phenomenal. And that opened the door for her to find more information and be more supportive for her child.
1: Yeah, this is another classic example of a person getting the information that they needed, that they didn't know exist at the time, or they didn't know how about to go get it. So.
0: Precisely. So, Finding the right information, more often than not, is one of the biggest challenges that individuals face when they're looking for answers. And for too many of them, the answers they're finding are in the media, and it's the wrong message. Right. What's also interesting is, as I share with folks, gender-diverse individuals, gender-nonconforming, gender-fluid individuals are not 20th or 21st century phenomenon. They go back thousands of years. The, you have ancient rabbinical texts that reference seven different genders. If you, look at history, if you look at the history of the 155 Native American tribes here in the North American continent, you'll find gender diverse individuals throughout. 16th and 17th century settlers who traveled to the North American continent during that period encountered tribes with gender-fluid individuals. And in the tribes within that culture, these gender-fluid or gender-diverse individuals were treated as being very special individuals with two souls. And they typically held very high positions within their cultures and their tribes. I mean, even in India today, there are several million individuals who are identified as such this is not a new phenomenon it's been part of history since the dawn of time
1: right you just gotta take the time to find the information
0: and that's the challenge and when you when someone encounters an individual like myself or another professional listen learn and then follow up you don't have to take what i say as gospel you can take what i say as a good starting point i'm a social psychologist i have phds in sociology and psychology and i've been working within this community for over 33 years i bring a lot of expertise to the table Which is why I am a subject matter expert on this. And I work with so many other individuals. And many of the psychologists who have a client or a patient that is gender dysphoric or is having issues with their identity. And they're not comfortable working with them. My phone rings. And they ask me to work with them. Biggest challenge then comes is the families. right? What's really said is within the adolescent community of gender diverse, transgender, gender dysphoric individuals. We're talking adolescents here. Those who are not supported by their family, many are thrown out onto the street because the parents will not accept it. The suicidal ideation rate in that population is 70%. The suicide rate is 40%. Now, those who have support from their families, their peers, their parents, and they're allowed to have proper medical intervention and psychological counseling to work through their dysphoria, their p- potential for suicidal ideology is equal to or less than that within the general population. This is where the support factor and the understanding is so important. One of the psychologist groups I work with, had a young man, 14 years old, 15 years old, was in for therapy because of gender dysphoria. And the psychologist was sharing resources, websites, information pages and the like where the young man could find his own information. Well, the parents found out about it, pulled him out of therapy, prohibited him from seeing the psychologist, telling the psychologist you're trying to convince him to be transgender. Three months later, the child committed suicide. That's how emotionally unnerving it can be until you sort of put the pieces together and understand why someone is experiencing dysphoria between their sex assigned in birth and what they feel is their gender
1: yeah I feel like a support system is very important
0: Well, let's take it outside the conversation we're talking about here within the LGBTQ community and gender diverse individuals. Whether an individual has an alcohol problem, a substance use problem, a problem with sexual activity, and you can go down the whole list. What provides the best help for that person? Their support team. Their support resources. People who have their backs. So it's not just within our community. It's anyone that's dealing with a life challenge. When they have to deal with it on their own. Many times they can't handle it. There is a young lady from California. I am mentoring. She's not a patient. Her evolution started last year, and she's on a good track. She shared with me some of her history, and she was addicted to drugs, bad health. Her hygiene was terrible. She couldn't keep a job because her dysphoria of gender incongruence was tearing her apart psychologically and emotionally. And her escape was to get high on drugs, but it didn't solve the problem. It just masked it. She got clean. She found the right help. She found a local support network. She hasn't been near a needle or a drug in three years. She's a year into her life's evolution to be a trans woman and She's working and doing phenomenally well. It almost killed her, the drugs. Mm. But before it reached that level, you know, she found a support group and people who cared and became support networks mentors made the difference. You know, let's go back in time a little bit to after I found. My first scrap of information, which led me to a support group. The first time I visited the support group, I had to be interviewed and screened. There were 40 people there. Exactly like myself. And it's like, wow, I'm not the only crazy person in the world. (laughs) That led me to a second group, which led me to a third group, which led me to a physician, an endocrinologist who specializes in working with the community and a psychologist And I was able to very quickly pull the pieces together and not fall into that abyss of self-destructive behavior.
1: Right. I'm just glad you had a good support system because it could have went the other direction for you.
0: Absolutely. And when I sat down to tell my parents what was going on. I did my mom first because I figured, okay, dad was old world Italian. So anything could have been possible with him. So I figured, let me start with mom. And we went out to dinner and I explained everything to her and when and what was taking place. And she looked at me as she sipped her coffee over dessert and said, you know, I always knew there was something different about you. She said, I didn't know what it was, but I knew all along that you were different. She said, this makes sense. This is a perfect fit. Now, everything I was experiencing with you over the years makes sense, which I almost fell out of my chair. Then it was my father's term. So we took him out to dinner, mom and I, explained everything to him. And he sat there. I was expecting Mount Vesuvius to go off. And I forget, if we went out to a public place, it might minimize the damage. Right. After dinner, he asked me three questions. Are you healthy? Yes. Are you happy? Yes, I am. Are you under good medical care? Yes, I am. Took a deep breath, sighed. He goes, Well, this is going to be an adjustment for me, but I'll work on it. Again, I almost fell out of my chair. And then my mom, in her infinite wisdom, because I had two sisters, older and younger, I was the middle child, she turns to my father and says, Well, sweetie, you now have what you always wanted. And he goes, What the hell is that? He goes, You have a (laughs) harem. So we had a really light moment at the end. But I had their support. That on top of the groups that I was working with. Provided me with the courage I needed. To embrace who I was destined to be. And Desmond, I never looked back. And once I evolved. Is the way I like to refer to it. And all the stress and worry of the past was behind me. My personal life and career took off like a rocket ship. I mean, I already had my degrees. But at that point, there were no more encumbrances interfering with my mindset, my focus, and my ability to do my work.
1: Now, that's why I like to call... The definition of open-mindedness with your parents. And I love that you took your mother out first and then your dad. And I knew it would take your dad a little more to process the situation. And I like how he took a deep breath. He didn't judge you or anything. He just processed everything and then said what he had to say. So that's pretty cool.
0: Well, an important fact is... I explained what was taking place in detail, medical detail, you know, my medical reports. Details are what make the difference. Credible, factual, informative details. And, you know, my mom always knew there was something different, which I knew nothing about until we had that dinner. And dad, you know, He listened, understood, processed it, and said, okay, I'll adjust. And it was an adjustment for him for a little while. But after a while, it was a non-issue.
1: The good thing is you may have been nervous at first to tell them, but you had the courage to say what you had to say. And you had... The information, the backup, which you were portraying to them. So that, like you said, it helped.
0: So I had the courage because I built up the courage because it was a necessity, Desmond. Right. You, an event in a person's life that's this significant, you don't just show up and say, Hi, this is the new me. They need to have an understanding so they can be eased into the transition and ultimately the evolution. Now, let me add something else here. Okay. A little in parallel. Nobody wakes up and says, I want to be a girl. I want to be a boy. It does not come out of left field. If the hormonal anomalies have taken place in utero, childhood behavior, prepubescent, is usually the first indication. Now, childhood is an area of time of life for children, prepubescent, that's full of exploration. And in many cases, you'll see gender fluidity, male, female, female, male. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be transgender because a lot of that behavior dissipates when the child enters adolescence with the beginning of puberty with the hormonal changes that take place at that point social changes physical changes in their body and so forth but you take the child usually beginning around three four sometimes as late as five that they're persistent insistent and consistent in stating that, you know, they are the other gender. You know, they may have been assigned female, but they're saying that they're male. Or they may be assigned male at birth, and they're saying they're female. That perspective in that child's mind does not dissipate when they enter puberty and adolescence. If anything, it'll become more intense. You know, parents ask, okay, what do we do with that child prepubescent in this fluid behavior? We tell them, ride the wave. Pay attention. Be supportive. Because to contradict and chastise does more harm than good. If it's not to be, if they're not consistent, insistent, persistent during childhood, when they reach adolescence, it's going to go away. But when they reach adolescence, it's going to become more significant and have the resources available medically and psychologically to help guide the individual as they enter adolescence. It can usually start with puberty blockers, which are reversible. Excuse me one second. I have a okay. No problem. Puberty blockers are reversible. And many times it'll provide the adolescent with relief from their dysphoria. And then with medical monitoring, because before puberty blockers are initiated, there are medical tests that be done. Bone mineralization studies, hormone studies. So you can establish a baseline <clears throat> to make sure that nothing adverse is happening. And then if cross-sex hormones are going to be in order, it usually starts 16, 17, 18. The prepubescent child. Nothing happens. No medical treatment. No surgical treatment. Now, if the child does have behavioral issues, well, then a psychologist who specializes in child development, it would be appropriate for that person to see the child. But no intervention until adolescence, if appropriate. Because one of the other things we do as professionals in this arena is we look for comorbidities. What underlying factors might exist that are either driving this behavior, driving this belief, or enhancing it? I was just reading a report recently out of the UK where there seems to be over the past 10 years, a growing incidence of what they call rapid onset gender dysphoria in adolescent females that showed no gender dysphoria, no gender diversity prior to that point. And upon further assessments and treatment they're finding that these individuals with rapid onset gender dysphoria have bigger problems. You know, they might be bulimic. There are individuals who are autistic that are now co-occurring with gender diversity. Uh, They may be having problems at home. Underlying factors have to be identified, treated concurrently if need be, or they find that it's the driving force and it needs to be dealt with. A lot to digest, hey Desmond?
1: Absolutely. But I always tell people I'm like a sponge. I like soaking up knowledge and learning about certain topics. I know certain things about it, other things I may not know about it. And I think it's all about the evolution of us human beings. is being able to learn and grow from things.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. If, I saw a great quote by uh, Denzel Washington recently. I had a laugh because it was so true. He goes, if you do not read the paper, you're uninformed. If you read the papers, you're misinformed. Washington, And on this day and age, that's so true. I mean, media, whether it's cable, news, print, they become more propaganda machines than news, than news media outlets. You know, they're telling you what to think rather than giving you what's taking place and let you draw your own conclusions.
1: Right. It's very true. That's why you have to do your own research first. You can't just believe everything you hear and, and say, especially when it comes from social media, because all of it's not true. So,
0: I have a routine I do every day. I am up 4 a.m. seven days a week, 530 in the morning. I'm at my local bagel shop. I sit down with my coffee, my bagel and my book and I read for an hour. These are all graduate level textbooks in my area of specialty and expertise to stay current for my professional practice, as well as for my podcast. I do a tremendous amount of reading. Otherwise, you, you get stagnant and you become ineffective. Seven days a week, that's what I do.
1: That sounds like a good way to wake up in the morning.
0: (laughs) It's a long-term routine that I do. And beyond that, I do a lot of reading during the day, a tremendous amount of research, because one of the things I love about the textbooks that I read in my area of specialty is aside from the source material that they list at the end of each chapter, They're providing references and recommendations for other books and titles. So every book I read, I end up finding two or three additional titles that I want to get to. My Amazon account, you know, save for later. I have 170 books sitting in there. Mm. God knows if I'll ever get through them all. But (laughs) they're in there. And then when I need to add titles, like I have another new one coming in, it'll be delivered Monday. You know, I filter through, yep, this is going to be a good one. I'll get this one, this one. And I probably keep adding more books to the list than I'm actually buying, but that's my resource. And then you take the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. You know, you have gender specific clinics around the country that are now putting out valuable material. You have the Mazzoni Center in Philadelphia. Uh, there's a very good center in Boston, Massachusetts. I forget the name of it offhand. The major medical centers. Every major medical center now has a gender diversity specialty area for these individuals.
1: Right. So, you're one of the few guests who have answered all my questions without me even asking you.
0: <laughs> well, when you invited me to be on your program, which I yep. considered to be an honor, because I've been I'm a guest on many programs, I know the type of questions you're going to ask, and I'm going to yep. be open candid. Also, the, my profile, which is on, you know, podcast guest, pretty much gives you an overview. So to the degree possible, I believe I know what you're looking for and I'll share it, but I'm also ready to receive and address any questions you would like to push my way.
1: Yeah. You pretty much covered everything I was going to ask, which is awesome.
0: <laughs> Desmond, Like I said, I'm an expert in my field. Right. When you have an opportunity, visit the WPATH website, WPATH.org, and you can access free of charge the Standard of Care 8. And if anything, just thumb through it. and You'll find a tremendous amount of credible, fascinating, informative information there.
1: Right. I was writing that down as you were telling me. <laughs> so at this point in my pod, I always turn it over to my guests and you can ask me any question that you want.
0: Well, all right. Turn the tables a little bit here. <laughs> all right. What prompted you to launch your podcast?
1: So at first it started out as a hobby I invited some of my close friends, asked them about their life stories, trials and tribulations, just to get a vibe, the feel for it, to see if I like it or not. And before that, I always listen to a variety of different podcasts, whether it has to do with finance, sports, business, music. Um, I like to just listen and indulge in a variety of different things. So once I started being able to invite guest on from different walks of life i like to hear about people's life stories their trials and tribulations um, their hopes and dreams what made them into the person that they are today and their future aspirations so it's all that rolled up into one is the reason why i started up my podcast And I
0: speculate to say that it also has become a tremendous learning platform for you as well, listening to these different people.
1: Absolutely. I'm a type of person I love to learn. I've always been that way.
0: It keeps you young, keeps the mind active, keeps the mind sharp.
1: Right. I totally agree.
0: Um, What, What was the biggest challenge you had launching your podcast? Um, very simple one Um, just having the courage
1: to do it more than anything else like I've listened to a variety of different podcasts and I sat there and think like well everybody else can do this I have a voice I have a story I like to listen to everybody else this than the third so it's all about finding the courage to do it that was the main thing and once I did that the rest of is history from here. I've been doing it for almost 3 years now, so.
0: <laughs> well, congratulations and it's good to have a voice and to have a platform to share knowledge and information, life experiences because every guest you have on, past and future, their story is not unique to them. There is going to be a listener out there or multiple listeners who will relate firsthand to the story and the life experiences that they're sharing. And listening to that guest on your show may be just the impetus they need to bolster their own sense of self-worth, their own strength level to endure and persevere you know persevere as they trug forward and maybe share their story with others
1: i totally agree
0: All right. how many countries or how far of a reach does your podcast have currently
1: um pretty much around the world i've interviewed guests in dubai denmark Sweden, uh, Colombia, Philippines. So it's all over the world. <laughs> yeah.
0: Do you do your own post-production editing?
1: Uh, yes. It's a one-man team. It's me by myself. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, in my studio, I have the Rode Podcaster Pro, three microphones, all roads. I use Adobe Audition, for my audio platform, which allows me a phenomenal amount of post-production abilities and creativity. I'm on 20 different platforms and I only launched the podcast this year and I'm already in eight countries.
1: Nice. That's awesome. You're able to expand your reach.
0: Part of the uh, two reasons I have uh, started the podcast, one to fill a void, to fill a need for the medical and behavioral health care professionals that are working with gender diverse, gender dysphoric, gender fluid individuals that haven't had the requisite training. They do a great job, but so many of them that I've met with whom I'm working, you know, it's like, my God, I had no idea. We never had this training. So the podcast focuses on their educational needs, and I have no advertisers, so there's no distraction. It's also beneficial, as I mentioned earlier, for the individual and their family who may be going through these challenges. But I also do a significant amount of public speaking and teaching, so it's a way for me to put myself out there as subject matter expert, and develop some supplemental work from it. Last October, I was invited to deliver the keynote address at Hope College out in Holland, Michigan. They launched their LGBTQ History Month Lecture Series. I had a great time out there for the week.
1: That's pretty cool, I wanna say. Congratulations on that. I know that was very, very big.
0: 150 people in attendance, including the dean of the college.
1: Nice. That's a lot of voices and a lot
0: of ears. (laughs) Most definitely. Most definitely. What uh, wrap up questions do you have for me, Desmond? I know you said you covered everything, but I'm sure there's got to be one or two. Um,
1: the most important is what will your current self say to your younger self? What advice would you give?
0: That's a tough question because
1: mm-hmm.
0: my younger self would not have access to the information that's available today. All right. Fortunately, my issues with my gender dysphoria, gender congruence, you might say, was not debilitating. It had its impact, some ways negative, but I think it strengthened me only because I didn't know what was going on. And I worked through it, as so many do, until they come to an understanding. So beyond that, Like I said, that's a tough question considering, you know, we're talking 60 years between then and now. A lot lot different. I was born in the 50s to date myself. Next month, I'll be a spring chicken of 69 years young.
1: Congratulations. I would say. It's how you feel more than anything else.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So before we end this, um, is there any last message you would like to leave with the listeners? And would you like to share your social media handles as well?
0: Okay. The best, all right. The first thing I would say is any listener, who has an issue with gender identity and they're not quite sure what they're experiencing or why, visit the WPATH website, wpath.org. Great information there. Support groups are available. You can find them online. Beware of a lot of the information online that is inaccurate but get yourself into a support group for parents. Go to WPath.org. Listen to your child. Understand what they're experiencing. Find the help that they're going to need. My recommendation for reaching out to me is start with the website, paradoxesofgender.com. Provides an overview of who I am, what I do, and also a link to my podcast. I host my podcast initially through Spreaker, and then through Spreaker, it's uploaded to over 20 different platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Audible, and the list goes on. I'm on LinkedIn, Dr. Diana Sorentino, PhD. Um, those are the best ways to reach out to me. But start with my website, paradoxespluralofgender.com. and that provides you with all the other links.
1: Make sure everybody to follow, please, please, please do.
0: <laughs> if you're experiencing issues of gender identity gender dysphoria, or you're a parent with a child, go to the podcast. They run 45 to 60 minutes each. I have professionals coming on as guests, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, individuals who have completed their revolutions, to share their stories, very valuable information.
1: There you have it. Um, I just want to say thank you so much, Dr. Cervantino, for accepting my invitation to come on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, I hope you found it um, informative and a valuable use of your time and resources.
1: Absolutely. Like I said earlier, I'm all about learning. So definitely I learned a lot today.
0: All right, so you have a safe evening, and uh, thank you.
1: You're welcome. You have a safe evening as well, and enjoy your weekend ahead, too.
0: Looking forward to it. Take care, young man. You, too. Good night. Bye-bye.